Hey there, and welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. This is your host, Brett Hawes, and we're back with another episode. Uh, no major announcements. Um, I will just say one thing. Um, I did say this on the last episode, but there will be the March against uh, Monsanto slash Bayer rally happening in Toronto on May 25th. Uh, if you are there, uh, check out the show notes, or if you're in the greater Toronto area or planning on coming here, uh, check out the show notes. I've linked to the Facebook event, um, and hopefully we'll see you there. So that's May 25th in the morning. And to sort of dovetail with that, um, I have renowned uh, sort of anti-GMO activist uh, Jeffrey Smith. He'll be on the show next week. Um, so expect uh, more promotion and PR around that because uh, I'm pretty excited about that. that, that that's a big show um, for me and I know for you guys as well. Um, some pretty pretty uh, interesting and striking information that uh, is coming up on his new documentary. So, uh, right, on to today's show. Um, Don't have a lot of uh, words and insight here because the show really says it all. And today we're talking about obesogens. So, obesogens are exactly what they sound like, uh, toxins that essentially make you fat. And my good friend and colleague, uh, Josh Gitalis, uh, joins me on the show today to sort of dive into this topic and unpack it. And really, uh, to simply encapsulate this entire episode, we talk about what they are. We talk about where you can find these toxins in your home, your environment, um, personal care products, and so on and so on. And we talk about how these actually affect your body, right? So we sort of dive into a little bit of the sciencey stuff, um, the sort of uh, biological chemistry side of things. Um, nothing too crazy. You know, everyone, I think, will follow us here. It's uh, not going off the deep end. Um, but if you've never thought about um, toxins, you know, we sort of throw that word around very casually. And I think for a lot of people, the word toxin just sounds terrifying, but we never really think about what it does or, or how it affects us um, in our day-to-day life. So I think um, if you've never thought about these things, uh, I think you'll find today's episode quite insightful. And of course, we're not going to leave you hanging. So by the end of this episode, um, I would say for the last third, uh, we do talk about um, what you can do. So in terms of how to avoid these toxins and of course, uh, some strategies on how you can detoxify these from your body. So as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please consider subscribing, reviewing, uh, sharing, and really just getting the word out there um, so that I can continue to bring you this show. Uh, Right, so let's just hop right into it and uh, talk about obesogens with Josh Gitalis. Hey, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. So happy to be here. Um, So we have actually known each other for a long time, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we were actually in school together uh, in some of the same classes, yes? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and that's going back some time. So I I think we've both sort of... um, gone our own way and been doing different things but um just wanted to give you a quick shout out before we hop into this uh, for all the work that you've done so far and uh, for sort of really just pushing the field of clinical nutrition forward here in canada and beyond uh, and of course also your pursuits in functional medicine um really an early adopter if you will so um kudos to you for the good work that you're up to thanks so much and my uh my feelings are the same for you 
Awesome. Yeah. Um, so uh, today we are going to be talking about obesogens, um, which uh, many of you listeners out there, you might not have heard of that terminology before, um, but you probably are going to be somewhat familiar with some of the things that we're going to be talking about. But Josh, um, quickly or, or you know, simply, what are obesogens? Absolutely. Yeah. So they're sort of what they sound like, right? I think most people can detect the word obese in the word. And they basically refer to chemicals that inappropriately stimulate adipogenesis, so the creation of fat, and fat storage within those fat cells. Um, this term was originally coined by Dr. Bruce, Bruce Blumberg, who was looking at various chemicals and how they might be affecting people me, people's metabolic health. You know, I'm sure you've noticed this in your practice, and I've definitely noticed this in mine, that you follow all of the rules, right? You you get mm -hmm. someone sleeping, you get them drinking water, you get them, um, you know, doing all of the fundamentals, eating the right foods, uh, exercising. Uh, you get, you know, certain blood levels checked, you know, their thyroid and make sure everything's in order, but they still have trouble losing weight. And this is mm -hmm. where we start to look at a whole other world of chemicals. And that's what these obesogens are. They're, they're various chemicals in our environment that are signaling in the body certain pathways that, as I mentioned, cause the creation of fat cells and the storage of fat. Right. So, I mean, when people think of chemicals, you know, we typically, um, or let, let's just sort of broadly say toxins, right? You know, when people think of toxins, uh, we might think of, you know, chemicals in our food, we might think of agricultural chemicals, um, we might think of cleaning products. But, you know, when I started researching a little bit for this, because I like to be up to date on things, um, I found that r at present moment, there's 80,000 chemicals registered with the U.S. government. And then, of course, add on to that things like food additives, uh, add on to that chemicals in personal care products, agricultural chemicals. So, I mean, really, uh, you know, I would love to get your insight on this. Do you feel like there's just this massive onslaught of, of toxins that we're facing every day? Oh, absolutely. And it's a huge problem. Uh, in fact, me and my wife just finished a course uh, called Healthy at Home, where we taught people how to get rid of as many chemicals as they could just in their home, you know, by going through mm. each room, the couches and the floors and the finishings uh, and what you use in your kitchen and what you use on your bed and what your bed's made out of and your cleaning products. And the list goes on and on. And you're quite right. There are over 80,000 chemicals in our environment. So when someone shows up in my clinic, uh, this is a huge wild card, right? This is something mm -hmm. I have to consider with every single person. Now, what's interesting is there's a lot of really great tests out there. You know, everyone's so into functional lab testing these days. Have you noticed that? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I get people asking me all the time for all kinds of tests. And I usually say to them, tests are great, but the solution and how to interpret the test is a whole nother ballgame, right? Absolutely. And a key part of doing testing is that you need to be able to make different clinical decisions based on that test. Now, when someone comes in, there's almost no point in me ever doing a toxin test, unless sometimes if I want to figure out the specific toxin, because we all have that body burden. It's unavoidable. I was mm. listening to a radio show a number of years ago, and they were talking about plastics. And these researchers were looking to see how far-reaching were the influences of plastic on our globe? 
one of the things they did was they went down to the deepest, darkest part of the ocean and they took a sample of the sand there and they found plastic even in that part. So these toxins are completely unavoidable. They're known, many of them are known as persistent organic pollutants because they persist for a very long time in our environment. They have a very short, uh, sorry, have a very long half-life, meaning that they last for a long time before they're biodegraded. And they have a long half-life in our bodies as well. And it makes it a lot more difficult for us to get rid of these through our detoxification pathways. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so it's interesting um, just about the whole, you know, plastics in the ocean. I think that a lot of people are aware of that, which is pretty depressing when you when you really get into it all. You know, finding microplastics in ocean animals now, in fish, um, in turtles. And as you said, I mean, right near the bottom of the ocean. But one of the things that I find probably more troubling, and perhaps you can speak to this, is the fact that a lot of these toxins are fat soluble. Right. So, so, you know, if things are water soluble, they tend to just flush right out of our body, or at least they're easier to flush out. But to my understanding, a lot of these toxins are fat soluble, which essentially means that they're very easy to accumulate and they, in fact, bioaccumulate over time. And conversely, they're also very difficult to get rid of. Is that a sort of fair um, summary, do you feel? Absolutely. Yes. They do accumulate in our fat cells. And in fact, there's been research done on people losing weight and what types of risk factors they have. So there was one paper showed that when we had one group who was on a weight loss program with no other comorbidities, in other words, they didn't have any other major health issues. And then we had another group that didn't lose weight and they were the, you know, the same BMI. The group that was losing weight on that weight loss program actually had a higher risk of mortality. Is, is that is that because they're dumping toxins into their blood, essentially? Yeah, well, that was the conclusion. That's the, mm. the thought that a lot of these were stored in the fat cells almost as a protective mechanism for the body, right? You know, the fat, um, mm. it can, can store things on the outside of the body away from the organs, away from the inside. So it acts as a protective mechanism to do something with all of these uh, toxins rather than allow them to accumulate in our vital organs like the liver and the spleen and the adrenals and, and our heart and etc. Um, so when we start to shed those cells or decrease the size of them, which is essentially what weight loss is, those stored toxins now get released. And then when people don't have the resources necessary to properly detoxify them through phase one and phase two liver detoxification, which helps to convert fat-soluble toxins into water-soluble toxins or allows us to eliminate them in the bile, then they run into big problems. They, get, they go into circulation, and then they can be toxic to you know, every cell in the body. Mm-hmm. Well, and to my understanding as well, I mean, that's you're what we're really talking about here is we're, you know, the analogy I like to use is I'm trying to clean up the room, but instead of sweeping everything out the door, I'm just moving it from one side to the other side of the room. Right. And so in this case, what we're saying is we're, we're sort of pushing toxins out of the fat cells, but they could actually translocate into other cells and, you know, perhaps get inside the cells, perhaps cause damage to DNA um, or to more cellular-based functioning, right? Um, which, yeah, you know, so it's, that, that, that's pretty interesting um, that you say that. Now, one other thing um, that comes to mind as we're talking about this is 
fat is fat is not an inert sort of thing, right? You know, you know, fat. Fat. Um, I was reading an article the other day how fat is actually an organ because it's got a lot to do with controlling inflammation. It's got a lot to do with leptin signaling as well. So, do you feel uh, two questions here? Do you feel that? the body as it becomes more toxic is a trying to put on more weight to protect itself in a sense to store all of this fat and then second question do you feel that that's compounded by things like leptin signaling and inflammation which essentially causes the body to put on even more weight absolutely i think we're there's many things that are actually compounding the effect and just to you know, bring to light a few of those mechanisms, let's first, you know, dive right into what an obesogen does, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things Bruce Blumberg uh, discovered, who originally coined the term, as I mentioned, was that these chemicals are acting in a couple ways. One, they affect the DNA and actually change uh, stem cell signaling to increase the amount of fat cells being produced. So our stem cells are cells that could differentiate into any cell in our body, right? It can become an eyeball cell. It can become a brain cell, a nerve cell, a muscle cell, a liver cell. So we want those stem cells to be shunted in ways that best serve us. Now, if we have a signal coming into the body that says, hey, you know, we need more fat cells for whatever reason. That's what the signal saying. We need more fat cells, build more fat cells. Well, that's what is going to be signaled to the DNA. The DNA is going to uh, tell the body to make more fat cells. And then, of course, when you have more fat cells, you have more storage. You know, it's like someone mm-hmm. coming to a fat, to, to one of those storage uh, facilities <laughs> and saying, you know, where where can I store all this this fat? And they're like, oh, we've got tons of units. You know, we're gonna we're gonna put a deal on right now, so we we get more people coming in, and then people just start loading their junk in there. Wow. So we have an increase in fat cells. We have an increase in fat storage as well. You know, the interesting and scary part of a fat cell is that it's got a a huge ability to to store fat, right? Um, So we can just keep on pumping and pumping and pumping fat in there and, um, you know, increasing the, the, the BMI of that individual. Right. So, so question on that, um, you know, perhaps for our listeners as well, fat cells can, I mean, do you, from, from the best of our knowledge, do fat cells just infinitely increase in size? Like they can just go, go, go? Or do we actually create more fat cells, you know, in terms of the number of cells or both? Uh, both in this situation. Okay, wow, which is pretty frightening. I mean, considering that we are dealing with a third of the global population that is either overweight or obese, um, you know, perhaps this is the sort of canary in the coal mine, uh, so to speak. So what, what are some of these other mechanisms, Josh? Um, yeah, so the other thing that we know is that these obesogens can affect uh, thyroid health. We know that certain toxins, a, a variety of toxins, are going to affect thyroid signaling at multiple levels, uh, from pituitary to thyroid with TSH, at uh, the receptors on the thyroid with T4 and T3 production, with uh, T4 to uh, T3 um, uh, conversion, which, you know, T3 being the more active, and then even mm-hmm. with the T3 activity on the cell in the, in the nucleus. Every one of those levels, we know that these um, pollutants affect that. So our th- you know, our thyroid is the thermostat of our whole body. You know, if we turn the 
temperature up, that's hyperthyroidism and the thyroid's working too fast. If we turn it down, that's hypothyroidism and cells are working too slow. And that would be a really uh, tough place for someone to be if they were trying to lose weight, right? Again, they're going to the gym, they're doing everything right, they're eating good food, yet their cells' metabolic activity is much slower than it should be. And therefore, they're not using energy as efficiently as they should be. So that's just another thing to pile on top of the fact that they might be making more fat cells and they might be storing more fat. Mm -hmm. And now just sort of staying on point with the thyroid for a minute, because I know a lot of listeners out there, I mean, thyroid health is just such a hot topic these days, Um, you know, especially looking at the um, what seems to be a, a rapid rise in Hashimoto's and autoimmune thyroiditis. But just a couple of things you said there, you know, What's fascinating to me, because my understanding was always, you know, these uh, fat-soluble toxins, um, perhaps a lot of listeners out there would be familiar with endocrine disruptors or or hormone-disrupting chemicals. You know, I think traditionally we always thought that these chemicals would lodge in the gland. So, you know, sort of lodge in the thyroid gland and then that would be the end of it, right? So impair thyroid functioning. But what I'm hearing is it's not just one place. It's actually affecting the entire um, cascade. So do you feel that... The sort of skilled clinician um, using blood work, so looking at TSH, looking at T4, T3, you know, RT3, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you think that someone could figure out like what was really going on with regards to obesogens or do you feel that you would sort of need some external testing to test for these toxins? I think yes and no. Um, it's a bit of a moving target because it is such a complex thing that is going on. First of all, mm-hmm. As we mentioned, there's 80,000 chemicals. A thousand of those have been confirmed to be endocrine disrupting chemicals. Wow. Uh, and that's only ones that have actually been researched. So there's another 79, over 79,000 to look at. And then at least 50 of those are confirmed obesogens. So that's a chemical soup. And not only that, we also have interaction between the different chemicals, which is known as chemical synergy. So we know that you know, one chemical plus one chemical plus one chemical does not equal three. It could be many, many times more harmful. And I'll give an example. You know, if you're a smoker, you have a 10 times increased risk of getting lung cancer. I think that's accepted by most people that smoking causes lung cancer. Uh, and then we also know, and and it's accepted by most people, that asbestos increases risk of lung cancer, and it's about a, a five-time increased risk. But if someone is a smoker and they're exposed to asbestos, they have a 55 times increased risk of getting lung cancer. Wow. So this is a synergistic effect in which we have absolutely no idea how it's actually manifesting in the body. So from a clinician's perspective, it's almost impossible to you know, check every single pathway and see what mm-hmm. might be affecting what. We almost ha- all have to approach this from the assumption that people are definitely 100% being exposed to these things. And most people, if not every single person on this planet, is going to benefit from some sort of clean-out and detoxification Mm -hmm. protocol. Yeah, and that makes um, perfectly good sense. You know, I I think perhaps in more severe cases, like I've definitely run a few um, sort of 
toxicology tests, if you will. And uh, it's been pretty pretty interesting to see what's come back, I, I got to say, because some people are pretty shocked mm-hmm. um, by what comes back. Uh, but then, of course, yeah, you know, the flip side of that is what do you do? And, and I think we'll sort of get to that in our conversation today. Um, now, aside from thyroid, or actually just sorry, one last question on thyroid. Do we know if these chemicals, um, you know, like impede nutrient absorption? Do, do they affect mineral absorption um, or anything to that effect? You know what? My guess would be that they do. Um, we know that things like glyphosate, for example, a chemical in our environment can really wreak mm-hmm. havoc on the gut. And once we start to mess with the gut and, and the that semi-permeable membrane, which is so important for uh, passing nutrients into the bloodstream, then now we've started to mess with nutrient absorption. So I'm sure there's multiple mechanisms at play there as well. Yeah. And again, you know, something that I, I think we're, we're sort of skirting around is the fact that, you know, a lot of these chemicals that we're talking about haven't really gone through safety testing. You know, they've been grandfathered in, um, you know, from regulations that were passed in the 60s and 70s. And uh, I think it's only now that, um, you know, people in our crowd are, are actually starting to look at them in a different light, um, you, you know, which which is unfortunate, but it's it's good that it's happening because, um, you know, I think the pressure is on to clean up the environment and to, of course, clean up ourselves uh, as well, right? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, they use they use a similar model to the judicial system where they're innocent until proven guilty. Yes. But, you, you know, in the four, we, we've learned this lesson multiple times. In the 40s, DDT was introduced into the environment and then we learned that it was toxic and, um, you know, then there was a fantastic book uh, published, Silent Spring, showing how damaging it was to our environment. And then finally... That was in the 60s. And then finally, in the 70s, they ban it. And then, of course, there's still countries that are using it for a certain period after that. And then it's still in our environment for a, a certain period of time. So these, you know, how many times do we have to learn that lesson? The unfortunate thing is that most people, um, probably exclu- excluding people who are interested in podcasts like this, but most people out there believe that their government is taking care of them and checking these things and running the right studies to make sure that only safe uh, items are used in their products. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that is not the case. And people are, you know, getting diagnosed with all sorts of illnesses, autoimmune disease, cancers, and then they're becoming aware of this and getting quite angry. So the the beauty of a podcast like this is to get this message out and to get people being proactive about this stuff way before it actually becomes a problem. Yeah. And I think that's spot on. I mean, you know, this is uh, as someone who taught nutrition and the environment for 12 years, you know, I've, I've looked into this extensively and, um, you know, you're absolutely correct because it's not just the government regulating the chemicals. It's also the industries themselves, you know, so a lot of people don't realize that the person, the, the sort of personal care products, you know, so, um, the cosmetics industry, for example, you know, they have the cosmetics review board. I think they're called. They are, it's a self-regulating organization, you know, which, which I think is, should be, should alarm everyone listening to this because, you know, if you're, if you're letting companies regulate themselves with industry funded studies and so on and so on, um, of course, everything's going to come out just fine and dandy. And then, you know, double down on that where you've got these corporations that are, you know, essentially, the government is shining the corporate shoe uh, because of lobbying and all that, all, all sorts of other stuff. Um, it's just a recipe for disaster. And I think you know, you and I are both seeing these things as clinicians. You know, we're seeing this in practice. 
Um, but, you know, again, as you say, podcasts like this, hopefully we're, we're, we're changing things. Um, I wanted to just sort of circle back to, uh, to, to something. Now, we were talking about thyroid and saying how these, you know, really affect thyroid health. Do we know if these chemicals affect any other um, endocrine organs or, or hormones particularly? Absolutely. Well, we know that these are endocrine disrupting chemicals. And one of the reasons why they've been given that title is because they mimic a lot of the hormones in the body. So estrogen, for example, many of these chemicals look like estrogen, but they can be up to a thousand times more powerful than our endogenous estrogens that we make in the body. So any organ or system in the body that has estrogen receptors is going to be influenced by these chemicals. Now, I think most people could imagine which organs are going to have these receptors. Breast tissue is definitely going to be one, um, prostate in men. And we see that many of these chemicals are connected to higher rates of breast cancer, higher rates of prostate cancer. And it's no mystery as to why that's the case at all. Mm -hmm. Now, do you feel, I mean, I know we're talking about obesogens, um, but do, do you feel, you know, I, I guess people might have this question, uh, what about people who are not overweight? You know, is it possible for them to be loaded up with these toxins as well? Oh, that's a great question. And the answer is absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, we're all exposed in some way and people are going to break down at their weakest link. You know, for some people, it's those signaling pathways that influence our fat cells. That's going to be their weakest link. For other people, it's going to be inflammatory compounds that can increase the growth of cancer. That's going to be their weakest link. And for others, we know that there's a very strong connection between uh, toxins and autoimmune disease as yeah. well. Yeah. So there's so many different possible pathways that are going to be affected. And really, it's going to be dependent on that person's unique genetic makeup. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I learned uh, a little while back, which which kind of like really stunned me because I had no idea was uh, a lot of times people that are very lean that don't have a lot of fat mass to sort of store these toxins. We actually store a lot of toxins in the lining of the GI tract, believe it or not, because they have nowhere else to go. Um, and of course, also, we know that people who are a little leaner are a lot more prone, generally speaking anyway, to adrenal issues. And so, again, that's another place where um, they might lodge. So, uh, yeah, yeah, interesting interesting stuff. I don't know if you have any comments on that, Josh. I do. We call these this visceral adipose tissue, where it's kind of on the inside rather than the outside. And another name for this, I think most people have heard of it, is skinny fat. You know, it's that person that... No matter what they eat, they don't really gain weight. So they end up throughout their life really not exercising that much and eating bad food. And they think because their BMI is normal and they're not gaining weight that they're in a healthy state. But this couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, what's happening is they're probably gaining more fat around their organs and in their intestine, as you mentioned. And if you do an MRI on these people, you see that they have a very high amount of adipose tissue viscerally. That's why it's called visceral adipose tissue or over vat, um, also known as skinny fat. And these, this type of fat can actually be a higher risk for that individual for things like cardiovascular disease than someone that's just, you know, fat from, from the traditional way that we see it. So they have to be very careful because they don't have sort of the societal norms that tell us we're unhealthy, right? Like you see someone who's obese and you're like, oh, okay, they're unhealthy. They need to make some changes in their lives. But you see someone who's skinny and that's not the immediate thought, right? So they're mm -hmm. kind of like a ticking time bomb. 
Yeah. And do do you feel like in a sense that these, because we can obviously only store so much visceral or internal fat, do you feel like the toxins are being even more concentrated in, in these types of folks? You know, I'm not sure on that. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, interesting, you know, especially because, you know, as you said, um, I think even out there, a couple of points that I would love your thoughts on, you know, BMI as, a, as an actual indicator, uh, you know, for health risks, um, you know, there's a lot of questioning around that nowadays. Um, and the other thing um, would be, you know, perhaps you can expand a little bit more on what the dangers of visceral fat actually are, you know, just for our listeners, because I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard of visceral fat. Um, so what happens when we accumulate that visceral fat internally uh, around our organs? Well, as you mentioned, that fat is like an organ. Now, with our organs in our body, like the liver, it won't really grow and shrink like fat can in the body. So fat has different signaling compounds that are released from it, and and they can create cascades, uh, for one example, of inflammation. Now, when we start to have this silent inflammation happening, and I call it silent inflammation because it's not like an injury where it's red and painful uh, and we can see it and feel it, it's kind of just this smoldering uh, fire that's going on in the body that then goes and puts us in in a, a very uh, susceptible position to chronic disease and chronic inflammation. And when we have inflammation happening in one part of the body, we can get it in all parts of the body. So that visceral adipose tissue, if it's creating an inflammatory cascade and releasing all these inflammatory compounds, it can affect other organ systems like the liver, like the heart, like the brain, which has become a very hot topic of, of late, like yeah. the intestines as well. Um, so we so we have to understand the bigger that that gets, the more of those compounds it's being that's being released. Right, that makes total sense. And I mean, you know, really to boil it all down for you folks listening, um, really we're talking about a sort of inflammatory cascade um, that can affect anywhere in the body. Now, Josh, do you know, uh, I mean, how how would people listening, like, is there a way to figure out, like, you know, are there uh, symptoms, signs for people with visceral fat? Like, is there a way to figure that out? Or do we have to actually get things like MRIs? Uh, You can do a bioimpedance analysis where you hold, you know, a couple electrodes and it gives you how, uh, an idea of how much fat and how much muscle you have in your body. That's going to give you sort of a basic idea. Um, there are some inflammatory compounds you can check through blood work like IL-6 and TNF-alpha if you have access to that CRP. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my most valuable tool is just looking at a person's history, looking at their diet, looking at their lifestyle, and that's really going to give me all the information I need. Awesome. Yeah, it's pretty spot on. I think a lot of people actually forget that, right? Because as you mentioned earlier, you know, everyone is like so wrapped up on on testing these days, which which is fine. But um, I find that a lot of people now have, they forget about all the other stuff, which is um, obviously super, super important. Um, so, Right. So we, I think we have a pretty good understanding of um, where these are coming from, what they're doing. Is, is there anything else you want to add to the health effects of this or any mechanisms before we sort of move on? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, we, we did discuss a little bit of where they're coming from, but maybe we can just dial down a little bit more specific sure. and talk about that. Um, there's many different types, again, of these obesogens. I said there's been at least 50 identified. 
And they come from things like, you know, like your cookware, you know, so Teflon, for example, um, has a chemical in it p- called PFOA and more specifically something called C8. Uh, there's actually a really fantastic documentary on um, Netflix. I'm not sure if you've seen it, at, seen it yet. It's called The Devil We Know. Uh, and it's a fantastic exploration of what actually happened with Teflon and this chemical C8 that they were dumping in people's water. So if people still believe that their governments are out there to take care of them 100% when it comes to chemicals, they need to watch this documentary. But Teflon's one example, you know, every time you cook on it and heat it up, it's going to go airborne, it's going to go into your body. And Teflon's actually one of those chemicals that's a bit more difficult to get out of the body once it's in the body. Oh, boy. (laughs) <laughs> there are quite a, there are quite a few persistent organic pollutants out there, and about eighty percent of them um, have a pretty short half life. And once you stop exposure to them, they can start to leave the body quite quickly. We actually know this with um, glyphosate, which we find in the uh, the chemical Roundup. That once you stop consuming it, you know the moment you start consuming organic, they see these levels come down quite quickly in people's bloodstream. Um, but Teflon is one of those that stick around a little bit longer. Then we have things like phthalates and bisphenol A, which are plasticizers. They help to make plastic more pliable. Um, they're even used in things like makeup to give them a, a nicer texture. Um, and so anything that has plastic uh, and is touching your food or your drink, you really want to make sure you're getting rid of. Uh, bisphenol A is even in some interesting products as well, which is becoming more known, like um, like receipt paper. Mm-hmm. You know, so every now and again, I'm doing some bookkeeping, and I have you know a whole pile of receipts I have to go through, um, and I do that now with gloves. And then I even afterwards, I wash my hands after because that bisphenol A, as soon as it makes contact with your skin, gets absorbed right into your bloodstream. It's quite quick. We also find bisphenol A in things like uh, coffee mug lids. So, you know, everyone's going out and getting their takeaway coffee in that cup that's probably lined with bisphenol A as well. It's a hot drink. It precipitates, you know, the steam precipitates up to that lid. It condensates and then it drips down with bisphenol A uh, part of it and it goes into your drink. So, you're now drinking an endocrine disrupting coffee or tea or whatever you're drinking. Uh, and we know uh, Dr. Datis Karazian published a study showing that bisphenol A uh, can affect uh, the immune system and can actually cause autoimmune disease. Wow. So that's another chemical. And then we have um, this whole world of brominated hydrocarbons known as PBDEs, which are flame retardants, which were actually brought into industry many years ago when uh, cigarette companies were told that they had to create uh, self-extinguishing cigarettes Um, but because they have so much money and they have such effective lobbyists, they actually turned that back around and said that, no, we don't have to have self-extinguishing cigarettes because we like the taste of our cigarettes and we don't want to mess up our formula. Um, but people just have to add flame retardants to all their products, right? Because there were so many fires happening from people smoking. Well, I, so I, they, I, think, I think it was people smoking in bed, right? And like falling asleep or something. <laughs> and, I mean, which uh, hopefully if you're listening yeah. to this, please don't do that. That's just not a good idea at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not not good at all. So so they lobbied to, to get these flame retardants introduced into, into uh, mattresses, right? So pe- those f- people falling asleep wouldn't start a fire. 
into um, uh, couches, into carpets, into the clothing of infants. Wow. Is that still happening? The clothing of infants? It's probably happening with certain products, but I actually have, because I have an almost two-year-old at the time of this recording, and some of his clothes have a warning on it saying, free of flame retardants. Wow. To let me know, as his father who bought this organic clothing, that, oh, if if the pajamas catch on fire, you've got a big problem, right? It just blows my mind. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So these flame retardants, they're also in cars, right? Like, you know, a lot of people really enjoy the new car smell. That new car smell is actually just a nice cocktail of chemicals. So these flame retardants, you know, again, get into the body and they're, they're known obesogens and they can cause that fat signaling to kind of take off. So those are a few places. We, we really just need to be aware, firstly, of where all these things can be lurking um, and then try to eliminate them as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's a good um, sort of end point on that segment because you know a lot of you listening out there are probably quite alarmed at this point and i know when you start reading up on this stuff we have a tendency to freak out um and just go oh my god like the stuff is everywhere what i need to do like i need to move to the himalayas or the arctic or something and that's not really the case Uh, i think what we're getting at is really just becoming aware and paying attention to our home environment is probably the best place to start, which you alluded to at the beginning. But I'm just going to share one exercise that I used to do with um, a lot of my students back in the day, is I would actually get them to go out and go through every room in their house and write down their cleaning products, write down their personal care products, um, just really take inventory, take stock of what is actually in their house. And then, of course, as an educator, I would get them to, to write me a paper. So it'd be a 20-page paper, and they would have to research three of the products. And holy smokes, what an eye-opener for every single person that did that. They, they were just absolutely shocked at some of the health uh, concerns. So for those of you listening out there, um, if you want to take that upon yourself, it's a very, very enlightening, eye-opening, um, sometimes a little frightening Uh, exercise to do. Um, But it really sort of ties in with what Josh and I are talking about right now. Um, Any anything else there, Josh, before we move on? Well, I think it's, you know, what you just said is great. And whenever I do talk about toxins, I usually warn people listening that we are going to start with the doom and gloom, but we're Mm. always going to give hope at the end. And it's so important to start with the doom and gloom because you have to understand how serious of an issue this is before you make change. Right. You know, usually... Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, I think we're saying the same thing. Um, so, so you know what? Let's hop right into it. Um, what can people do? So much, which is the good <laughs> news. <laughs> Great. So, you know, so we've got uh, natural ways that we can process and get rid of toxins in the body. And, you know, what I teach my students actually in my program, and I know what you've learned also, is that we have what are called five channels of elimination. Ways that we can get stuff, whether it's toxins or used up neurotransmitters or hormones from the inside of the body to the outside of the body. Those channels of elimination are the bowel or the colon, uh, the skin, um, the kidneys, uh, the lungs, and the mind as well, which a lot of people forget about. The mind, yeah. awesome. 
yes, thoughts can be toxic, as I think mm-hmm. most of us understand. So any way we can optimize those channels of elimination are going to help with the movement of toxins through the body. So making sure we're having at least one to three bowel movements every single day. How do we do that? We drink lots of water. We consume whole foods with lots of good fiber, both soluble and insoluble fiber. We take the time to have a bowel movement. We make sure we're in the squat position <laughs> using the squatty, poppy, squatty potty or sitting on the toilet uh, properly by, by squatting on it. Um, we make sure we get into rest and digest mode when we're consuming meals. I mean, all these things are going to help with elimination. And then we can use some extra supplementation if need be, like extra fiber supplements or probiotics, uh, things to move, uh, help things move through. And then with the kidneys, we can, you know, just drink a lot of water. You know, the best solution to pollution is dilution. So a toxin is only a toxin in a certain concentration, uh, even water can be a toxin if you consume too much of it. Uh, but in this case, water is a good thing. It's going to help dilute a lot of the stuff that's going through your body. It's going to help you pee it out. Of course, our urine is uh, a wonderful cocktail of byproducts from regular metabolism. Um, so we want to uh, get those out as efficiently as possible. So drinking lots of water is good. And then with the skin, we know that um, it's kind of a two-way street with the skin. We can absorb things through the skin, as anyone who has ever tried to quit smoking and has used the Nicorette patch would understand, because mm-hmm. you can actually absorb that right through the skin. Uh, you can even There's even hormone patches you can put on the skin as well and hormone creams. But we also release things through the skin, about two pounds of toxins per day. So sweating is a really effective way to get rid of a lot of toxins, a lot of um, fat-soluble toxins. It's a great way to get rid of certain heavy metals like cadmium. In fact, it's one of the best and only ways to get rid of cadmium. Not as effective for other things like lead and mercury, but really great for cadmium. So getting into situations where we can sweat it out. Um, We have at home uh, uh, an infrared sauna, like a two-person infrared sauna, which we actually got a number of years ago and just had it in a little corner of our apartment. It actually doesn't take up that much space. It arrived in six pieces. We assembled it in 20 minutes. It has just been an amazing part of our health regimen. So infrared saunas can help release a lot of those fat-soluble toxins just by sweating it out you know, for 20, 30 minutes or more if you can handle mm-hmm. it. And, you know, most people say, uh, does it need to be infrared sauna? No, it doesn't. We see uh, similar benefits. There's a lot of studies that have come out of Europe because they use, you know, uh, dry uh, stone saunas quite a bit over there. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they also, um, you know, enjoy a lot of the benefits associated with, with saunas. So infrared, you know, dry saunas, even steams are good. Anything to get that sweat response happening. Even, you know, some hot yoga would be great. Yeah. And just get that skin breathing. Uh, And then, of course, for the lungs, uh, deep breathing. You know, yoga is amazing for that. Meditation is amazing for that. Just even straight up deep breathing exercises is going to help with releasing toxins through the lungs. Of course, exercise can be super helpful there as well. And then with the mind... I like to put my clients on a social media detox. So no Instagram, no Facebook, no clickbait news feeds. Um, You know, as much as they can when they're doing one of my detoxes, they're trying to avoid this stuff that can come into their mind. 
and be toxic to to their mind. And we know from the work of Candace Pert that uh, you know any emotion that we have that's negative creates a cocktail of molecules known as the molecules of emotion. They're these peptides that then go signal with pretty much every cell in our body. Uh, so that's how the translation of of our thoughts and our perceptions can convert into toxic substances in the body. So mm-hmm. those you know those are great ways to really optimize the five channels of elimination. And then, of course, we have these sort of internal cleansing systems, which also do a lot of work. We got the lymphatic system, which collects all the garbage. So exercising and skin brushing and and moving um, is all going to help that lymph move as well because it doesn't have anything to pump it around like the heart pumps our our blood around the body. And then the liver, I know, you know, Brett, you're uh, an expert in liver detoxification as well. Um, I think that's actually one of the classes we might've taken together. I think so. Yeah. 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 And, and liver, I mean, has, you know, over 500 jobs and is one of the key players in changing those fat soluble toxins to a water soluble form or changing a harmful hormone or chemical to a non-harmful form, almost like putting handcuffs on it and helping make it, uh, you know, excretable by the kidneys or dumping it into the bile and allowing us to just, you know, eventually poop it out. Now, the liver is highly energy dependent and highly nutrient dependent. So all of those wonderful colors in our food, the dark colors, the dark purples and greens and yellows and oranges have the ability to help ramp up and fuel these detoxification pathways. So, you know, there's like thousands of diets out there. I know you've probably come across so yep. many over your years. But one thing we all agree on, I think, is just to eat way more vegetables, lots of vegetables, lots of colors, and lots of fruit as well to get those nutrients that fuel those pathways. A hundred percent. And qu- question for you. I mean, that's really just a great summary over the last um, five or six minutes. Uh, you know, for those of you listening out there, I know it might seem like a lot. And so what I would encourage you to do is just sort of pick one area, you know, as Josh said, just start with switching to organic, switching to a whole foods diet. That's a really good start. And then learn and focus on each of these areas as you move on and just sort of incorporate them uh, and roll them into a daily practice, you you know, or a weekly practice or whatever it is. Um, Just, you know, the reason why I say that is when you start getting into all of this, it can be very overwhelming uh, at first. You know, we're we're just sort of met with a wall of information and all of the stuff that we have to do. And so I think, you know, go back and listen to the last 10 minutes or so of this podcast and uh, just pick and choose some areas that you really want to work on. Um, so, Josh, um, I think let's sort of wrap things up. Um, but uh, question for you, what are your five top foods for detoxification? Can I include some herbs too? Totally. Yeah. So, top five foods, I would say, you know, cilantro is definitely one that's up there. Cilantro and parsley, both super high in chlorophyll. Chlorophyll has been shown to really help with chelating heavy metals, for example, and chelating other toxins. Um, So anything green, um, but of course, parsley and and cilantro really concentrate that in. Uh, An herb that I really love uh, for many reasons, and there's been a ton of research on it, is turmeric. 
Um, mm-hmm. Turmeric helps to increase liver detoxification. It has an active component in it called curcumin, which gives it that nice yellow pigment. And it doesn't just increase and improve liver detoxification. It protects the liver through that right. detoxification process. And it gives you the added benefit of decreasing inflammation through some of the inflammatory pathways. So that's another uh, powerhouse. Um, in terms of uh, foods, uh, I, the berries, I mean, are, are extremely powerful. I recommend, to be specific, I recommend raspberries a lot to my female clients because it has a component in it called elagic acid. And elagic acid has been shown to increase uh, a certain process in the liver known as glucuronidation by about mm-hmm. 75%. Wow, so, 75%. That's that's significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's re- so it's really helpful for uh, females uh, who might have estrogen dominance or estrogen or, or hormones that are not being properly cleared in the body. You know, I had, mm. I remember one client I had once and I prepared a, a full protocol for her for, you know, she had was having pretty severe PMS symptoms. And she came back for the follow-up and I said, well, you know, we went through every recommendation. I said, how'd you do with everything? She's like, you know what? I was so busy in life. I really could not get into the protocol full on. And all I did was the raspberries you recommended and the flaxseed you recommended. (laughs) And my symptoms have been fine since. Wow. So it sometimes just goes to show you the power of food and how just some of the most simple things when you, when we apply them and do them on a regular basis, how powerful those can be. Wow. Amazing. Um, so f- f- final thought from my side, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. This sure. could be a whole nother podcast, but um, coffee, yay or nay for, for detoxification? Like coffee enemas? Uh, or just coffee, even drinking coffee. Uh, drinking coffee. I don't think there's much uh, good information on drinking coffee for detoxification. Um, the 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 thing that I'm aware of is coffee enemas in terms of u- mm-hmm. using that for uh, detoxification. And it's an interesting question you ask because I've done them, I've tried them, I've experimented with them, I've even recommended them at times. But there was a, a couple of years ago where I went and tried to find some really good research on it because there, it was being referenced and recommended in so many places and, and a lot of places from practitioners that I really respected. And the research was quite scant in, in right. my opinion. You know, there, there was discussion of certain components in the coffee that could increase detoxification, but it was never in the context of actually um, doing it as an enema and mm-hmm. testing that clinically. So with those types of things, in my opinion, I don't say a yay or I don't say a nay. I say the jury's still out and I would love to see some good information on that in the future. Awesome. Well, you know what? I'm going to throw something at you here and I'm going to invite you to something. And this is actually the first time that I'm mentioning it. So we're, we've been working, um, I've been working with an organization called the Detox Project, which you might be familiar with. Uh, so they are an international organization based in Europe. And one of the things that one of their mandates is to actually, quote unquote, regulate the detox industry. Right, because you know, there's a lot of things that are said and claimed, mm-hmm. but when you start getting, as you said, into the research, um, there's some things that are very obvious, and there's some things that need more research. So, what we're going to be doing is actually opening up a group. Um, I just got a sort of final email a couple of days ago. We're going to be opening up a group, and I would love to have you in that group because the idea is to get 
um, high-level health professionals uh, together. Um, potentially, we're talking about getting the general public in there as well. But we want to start having a discussion about how do people effectively detoxify their body, what has been proven, what is still out, you know, the jury's out to lunch, and so on and so on. So um, I'll let you know about that, but uh, keep, keep an eye out for that because I think that it's going to be a good discussion about many of the things that we've discussed on this podcast. Love it. I would love to take part. Yeah, awesome. So Josh, I'm going to wrap things up, but before I let you go, um, you know, what are you up to these days? Where can people find more of what you're doing? Anything you want to sort of uh, promote here? Yeah, sure. So, you know, everyone can find me at joshgitalis.com. And I also run a functional nutrition certification program. And we have a group uh, that starts in September and January every year. Uh, And through this program, we go through uh, a whole bunch of functional nutrition and functional medicine concepts, looking at specific specific systems like the digestion, um, digestive tract, and gastrointestinal. Um, We look at hormones in detail. We have a mental health and neurology course, and we also have a detox and biotransformation course where we really get into a lot of what we spoke about today in great detail and how to apply it clinically. Uh, We also have a full course on supplements and we do case studies. So if anyone wants to check that out, they can go to functionalnutrition.ca. And with those two links, uh, they'll be able to find everything they need. Awesome. And just to be clear, those the, the programs that you're offering are for practitioners only. Is that right? They're for practitioners and health enthusiasts. So we do have different levels based on people's needs and uh, they can read Great. up on that. Awesome. Well, Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's uh, been great to sit down with you for the last hour or so and um, catch up. You know, it's been a while. Always a pleasure joining you. Thanks for having me. Okay, great stuff. And so you you folks out there listening, um, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you did, uh, please consider uh, sharing this with your friends, your family, your community, and of course, uh, subscribing, leaving us a review, anything you can do to help me bring on more awesome guests like Josh. So Josh, thank you for coming on once again. And for those of you listening out there, you have a beautiful day wherever you are. Bye.